we are about to embark on what is without a doubt the, not just one of the, but the most dramatic, literal, literally earth-shattering series of events in the history of this world since Eden. This is not hyperbole, but prophetic fact. Oh, what are you doing here? From here, the sixth bowl of wrath, which triggers Armageddon, until the start of the millennium, events are let loose which will result in a literal, literal geographic reshaping of this globe. And of course, much more. Later I'll get to that chart. Don't, don't try to do it on your own. It's, 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 it'll be too painful. It all happens at lightning speed. One dramatic convulsive event piled on top of another, often overlapping, all with ramifications, ramifications that will echo into eternity. First, we need to set the stage. Could we have chart number 18, please, Zeb? We have to begin by getting our bearings. What is the shape of things as we, re we return to the narrative of the bowls of wrath, beginning with the sixth bowl? First, aside from Christ Jesus himself, who are the key actors? Well, first there's the beast, who's also the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The angels with the seven bowls, the kings or armies from north, south, and east, and the people of Jerusalem and vicinity. Where are the key actors and what are they doing? The beast is encamped in the vicinity. I just lost me, didn't I? Am I still there? Oh. I sometimes wonder if I'm still there. The beast is encamped in the vicinity of Megiddo in Israel toward the west coast of Israel. He, Antichrist, is almost certainly anticipating and gearing up to meet armies from the north and south and possibly east. From the beast's perspective, and this is important, from the beast's perspective, he is preparing to fight men, nations, not Christ. Kings from the north and south are converging on Megiddo and what we today call Israel. What it will be called in that day, we don't know. To the beast, it's but a rumor, but we know that kings from the east are advancing toward the river Euphrates, or perhaps even encamped on its eastern shore, waiting to advance. The people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, perhaps the entire nation of Israel and even beyond, are probably already under the gun. 
experiencing invasion and violence of all sorts. Now chart 17, please, Zeb. Meanwhile, let us not forget that the world as a whole remains under the assault, the bombardment. They're called plagues, but they're really thrusts, bombs, of the first five bowls of wrath. The first bowl released loathsome sores on all followers of the beast. The second turned all the seas to thick blood, killing everything in them. Not just tinged the color of red, but blood as from a dead person. Thick, coagulated, disgusting. The third did the same to all fresh water on earth. The fourth bowl turned the sun into a fierce, scorching furnace upon the surface of the earth. And the fifth bowl did the opposite. It extinguished all the heavenly lights, casting the earth into darkness. Dark. And now on top of all that, at the same time, war. And if you still require convincing that this is all about Israel and God's love for his chosen people, stay tuned. We'll see, it's all about Israel. But of course, we will see that this is not an earthly defined love that God has for Israel. God will ultimately save and exalt a remnant of his people. But not before putting them through even more trials than they've already been through. He is punishing the wicked. He is winnowing the chaff from the wheat. He is demonstrating his sovereign power all to his glory. We now return to chapter 16 of the Revelation. We've spent some time looking at chapters 17 and 18, which are set apart from the timeline, although they sift into it here and there. But now we return to the bowls of wrath. We begin with this, verse 12, the sixth bowl. With the sixth angel, we have the first recorded move toward the fateful battle of Armageddon. And after studying all this, I now know why it's called the Battle of Armageddon. First off, I've put it in scare quotes simply because there's no battle at all. Jesus opens his mouth and boom, they're dead. He can do that. But it is a battle as part of a larger war. There is a world war going on, and this is a battle within it. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Various opinions abound on just who these kings are that will benefit from the drying up of the Euphrates. Walberg claims there's as many as 50 different interpretations. And he says that, that proves how wrong they all are. <laughs> and my position remains, who cares? They are oriental 
kings, oriental nations from the east, coming toward Israel. That's really all we need to know. If we knew that this was going to be happening one year from now, we could probably name who they are. But we don't know when this is going to be. As is our way, we will take this to mean what it says. There will be oriental kings from the east. The word east is literally from the rising of the sun. That's what the word is. Who will be coming at Antichrist, either independent of or in league with the kings from the north and the south. We really don't know if it's a coalition or not, whether they're organized, communicating with each other, but there's north, there's south, and now the way has been paved for them to come from the east. Recall, east. Recall what we read in Daniel 11:44. but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, that is the beast. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Sidebar, don't get thrown off track by the use of kings in this narrative. For our purposes, just think nations. Or even better in this context, armies. And someone's in charge. God does not stop these armies from the east, but in fact paves the way for their approach. Why? Well, MacArthur has a good answer. God's drying up the Euphrates is not an act of kindness toward the kings of the east, but one of judgment. They and their armies will be entering a deadly trap. By drying up the Euphrates, he says, come on in. Got something waiting for you. There may, and I emphasize may, be a connection between the sixth bowl and the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. John Walvard writes this, The relationship between the drying up of the Euphrates and the battle that follows has sometimes been connected with the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. In the sixth trumpet, an army of 200 million men, I, men is loosely, is loosed to slay a third part of men, 9.15. This army is related to the Euphrates River, even as the army of the kings of the east. Probably the best explanation is that seven vials, or we say bowls, follow very rapidly after the trumpets and that the events such as a great invasion are pictured in their early stages in the sixth trumpet with a statement of their ultimate purpose that is actually realized in the sixth vial or bowl. The time sequence here may be in terms of days rather than months or years. It's John Walvoord. Now, the reason I do not wholeheartedly endorse that as if Walvoord needed my endorsement. That's a bad word to use, Lample. Is that unless the tribulation is scheduled for still thousands of years in the future, and it may be, I question that Daniel 11.44 would say that the beast was hearing rumors from the east. We know from history that advances in science and technology do not always increase. 
do not always steadily, incrementally increase. So at certain times in the history of man, these things have been forgotten, causing the advance of society to roll backward for a while. Did you know that concrete was used in the great pyramid of Egypt? Pyramid of Khafre? Many of those stones were formed from concrete. Only to be rediscovered later. It's possible that if more thousands of years will pass before these days are played out, the technology of today will have been forgotten. If not, we can safely assume that Antichrist will be in possession of high-definition images of those 200 million men. Horsemen at the Euphrates. It won't be just a rumor, at least before the darkness of the fifth bowl. That could gum things up. Earlier I said that from the beast's perspective, he's preparing to fight men, not Christ. After our study of Daniel 11, 35 to 45, that seemed to be the only logical conclusion that from an earthly perspective, these armies were first gathered to fight each other. Antichrist is fighting those from the north, those from the south, and soon from the east. Only later will they turn en masse to fight Christ Jesus and his army of angels. Matthew 24, 30 to 31. So in rough, general terms, there's a world war going on. All focused on Israel. Probably the length and breadth of Israel and beyond. There's a war going on between nations. From other nations against the beast. Christ returns. And all those armies turn and fight him, or intending to fight him. I was encouraged to learn that John Walvert agrees with me on this point. Some have interpreted this, he writes, as a gathering of forces in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. More probably, it reflects a conflict among the nations themselves in the latter portion of the Great Tribulation as the world empire, so hastily put together, begins to disintegrate. The armies of the world contending for honors on the battlefield at the very time of the second coming of Christ do all turn, however, and combine their efforts against Christ and his army from heaven when the glory of the second coming appears in the heavens. It will be the final challenge to divine sovereignty and power as the military might of the world of that day will be engaged in fighting on the very day that Christ returns. Now, this would help us understand the prophecy of Zechariah 14. I've, I've read that so many times, and I think, I don't understand why this is going on in Jerusalem. Why is it saying that? It's puzzled me for some time. 
Thus, in advance of Christ's return, we see much fighting between nations. nations. Huge armies are prosecuting another world war. Only God knows whether this is World War III or World War 29. We don't know. And the worst of it is in the Middle East, especially Israel, with a focus on Jerusalem. Turn, please, to Zechariah 14. Great chapter. If you're wondering, blow the dust off your Old Testament, and Zechariah is next to the last before the New Testament, right before Malachi. Chapter 14. Not yet, Scott. Go ahead, go ahead and get rid of it. But not yet. This important prophecy is set up in the final verses of chapter 13. And if you're still looking at chart number 17, you may wish to switch to our new chart, number 20. Could we have it, Zeb? Perhaps I should take a moment to explain. These events, I've numbered them as 14 of them, really do not lend themselves to a linear arrangement. Sometimes they do follow one another, but there's overlapping. It's unclear at some points where they happen. So we have the fifth bowl, and then these begin. And, and roughly, you can take them in order. And I've presented this as the events surrounding Christ's return. They, generally speaking, follow the order of their numbering. Messiah comes, Christ returns roughly right here, the Battle of Armageddon, number 11. But these things occur around it, around his coming. And then I've highlighted the two, number two and three, that are part of bowl number six, and these over here that are part of bowl seven. Followed by the millennia. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 to 9. And it will, turn up, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Whether through the beast purges or through the systematic plagues, two-thirds of Israel will have been killed for rejecting Christ, while one-third will be saved. But the Lord of hosts declares that though he has saved a remnant, he has reserved a last-minute baptism by fire for further refining. Then the prophet details what this will look like. 
a passage that now makes sense to your humble teacher with the war set forth in Daniel 11. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured and houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So that's hard to read. Number one, what happens in Jerusalem. But that God is aware of it. He's planned it. He's pro prophesied it. And he comes in right after the first two verses. He comes in and fights for Jerusalem. And we want to say in our, from our human perspective, well, why didn't you do that before Jerusalem got attacked? I can't help but think that this consists not just of Jerusalem being in the path of the battle, but also a last-minute belch of anti-Semitism by the remaining Goyim. Nothing has changed. Even at this late date, the world as a system still hates Jews. Now we're ready for verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16 of Revelation 16 further the narrative in the guise of a parenthetical vision. It's not really, but it kind of looks like it. Let's read verses 13 to 14 of Revelation 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Haven't we all had dreams in which we see someone who looks nothing like anyone we know? But in the dream, we just know that this is our wife or husband or Father or mother, or am I the only one? I'm the only one. I'm the only one with a head so screwed up that... Now, I must say they never look like frogs, but... Well, just so, here John is shown a vision in which two of our actors, with Satan, the dragon, Satan, the beast, Antichrist, and the false prophet, Anti-Spirit, Spew forth unclean spirits presented in the vision as hideous frogs. The Greek is, is batrakoi. Though this fits into the narrative, I suggest it points backward to a point earlier in the tribulation. Earlier in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, these spirits of demons, daemonon, would have been sent out as emissaries to work wonders, impressing the kings scattered about the world, and cause them to go to war. These are the ones organizing things. 
making things happen in, in the minds of these kings from the north, south, and east. So these kings are being caused to go to war. They don't know they're marching to their doom before the Lord. They think they'll be fighting men. Then we have a literal parenthesis in verse 15, voiced probably by Christ himself or by Father God. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. This is not speaking about what will happen to nudists during the eschaton. This verse speaks of the readiness of a soldier who must sleep fully clothed so as to be ready for instant combat. This is not speaking of literal clothing, but being clothed in righteousness. The prophet Isaiah spoke of it. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 61.10 Your nakedness and shame will be that you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ to your doom. Because as these are happening, precisely where we can't say, but as these events are occurring, the curtain is falling. No more chances. That's it. If you do not know Christ, that's it. Verse 16 snaps us back to our timeline. And they, that is the spirits of demons from verse 14, gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Magadon. This, how was it? How was it? Ah, never mind. This last word is the Hebrew word for Mount Megiddo. Har is mount. Or it can mean mountainous or hill country. It doesn't have to be a mountain. It can be hill country, which fits. For the plain of Megiddo is surrounded by hill country. This passage, verses 13 to 16, does raise the possibility that the demonic trilogy of Satan and the two beasts does indeed know that ultimately the battle will be against the Lord himself. Certainly Satan, who knows Scripture better than any one of us. Well, maybe not Pastor Andrews. Is a, the, Satan do, is aware that the war will turn from men fighting each other to fighting Christ. He knows the prophecies in God's word. I think it's an open question whether the two beasts realize this. I think their, their father, their, their lord, Satan, may be keeping them in the dark in a few things. We can't say. Verse 17, the seventh bowl. 
Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. The human mind struggles in vain to describe this moment. All attempts fall flat in the presence of a righteous, holy God delivering his final blow upon this fallen world. In a similar moment, when Christ Jesus was breathing his last upon the cross, he cried out, It is finished. That declaration announced the completion of the necessary sacrifice for sinful but repentant man to now have a way through Christ to reach a holy God. It marked at once an end and a new beginning. Now, in this moment, that same holy God declares, it is done. This is his final act of wrath a vengeance against the unrepentant, those who refuse to bow before the Lord Christ Jesus. There remains his final judgment, but this seventh bowl with its multiple contents, one, two, three, four, five, marks the last blow of his outpoured wrath. Yet, just as at the cross, that which is done marks another new beginning. This is the pivot point between the old and the new. For it announces the return, the long-awaited return, of the Messiah to his creation. He left the earth as the lamb slain. He will return as a rod of iron. Psalm 2, verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 5, Revelation 19, verse 15. I've been pointing this out even before this class began as I was describing what was coming up. This Jesus who returns won't look anything like the one who left. He will not behave the same way. What Christ declared from the cross using the word teleo meant that he had completed or accomplished something. What God declares at the end of the tribulation with it is done using just one Greek word, gegonen, means to come into being, to be born. This marks the end of his wrath upon the earth, but it also marks the birth of something brand new. And it is brand new, never seen before. The reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. Or as Alan Johnson translates it, this word gegenon, it has come to pass. Meaning essentially, what I promised, I have done. I just did it. And if you add up everything we've looked at thus far, 
you may be realizing that anyone, and perhaps even you, thinking that that millennial reign is going to be paradise. No. There will be an aspect of it with Christ in charge. But physically, what has been happening to this earth? What's about to happen will be even worse. This earth will be a wreck, literally. Literally reshaped. Resources will be non-existent. There still will be those in rebellion against Christ. Won't be a paradise. As we wish, as we enjoy the fact that we won't be part of the tribulation, I don't think we'd enjoy the millennium much, much more. Verses 18 to 21, the worst of his wrath. In his eschatological discourse, Jesus foretold this moment in Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here's how John describes the same moment in verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. These are the final acts of God's reshaping of the earth in preparation for Christ's millennial reign and ultimately being replaced by a new earth. We've, some, some of you like me have often wondered in the past, why do we need a new earth? <laughs> After all this, we need a new earth. Through the seals, the trumpets, and the first six bowls of wrath, heaven has dealt cataclysmic blows upon the earth, destroying trade, commerce, the natural world, and millions of lives. These in the seventh bowl are the last and worst of it. Part of this will be the falling of Babylon, which we saw in chapters 17 and 18, and all the cities of the world, verse 19. The great city, Babylon, was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The prophet Zechariah tells the story even better. And in his text, we see an example of why it can be so difficult to determine a proper sequence to these events. For in Revelation... The reshaping of the earth seems to happen prior to Christ's return, at least uh, the majority of it. While in Zechariah, it seems to be his return that triggers most of the geographical shifts. Look at Zechariah 14 again. Zechariah 14 beginning with verse 4. In that day, that 
glorious day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move forward to the north and the other half toward the south. Pause. Picture it. We've all seen, here's Jerusalem. Here's the Mount of Olives to the east. That's going to be split. Why? So that that third, remaining third remnant, can get out. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as winter. There's another word picture of what will be happening to the earth. Jerusalem will rise while the mountains go down, islands disappear. Everything becomes a plain with, mountain high, with Jerusalem higher than everything else. Verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. One clue beyond verse 10, another clue that tells us that Jerusalem will be exalted as a matter, as in a word, is that all the water flows away from it. It'll, it'll, it'll be like the, the continental divide. On this side, water will flow this way away from Jerusalem. On this side, water will flow that way. The city of Jerusalem, rather than being destroyed with the rest, will be elevated and all the surrounding land reduced to a plain. The geological changes extend around the globe. Now, back to Revelation 16. Verse 20. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Another sidebar here. MacArthur, citing Henry Morris, ascribes the disappearing of islands and mountains to God returning the earth to its antediluvian state, that is, pre-flood. That is, quote, a gentle rolling topography of the world as originally created, without inaccessible, uninhabitable mountain ranges or deserts or ice caps, end quote. 
While I do not at all dis dispute his description of the reshaped world and the eschaton, Scripture's clear. Mountains come down, valleys come up, it's one plain. I'm not sure I subscribe to his description of the world as originally created. Could be, I could be ignorant of this, but I, not, I'm not buying that. If we required further evidence of the finality and thoroughness of God's wrath, here it is. It's not enough that humanity has been made to suffer every plague and onslaught of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. It's not enough that the water has been poisoned, then turned to blood, and that the whole world lies in thick darkness. It's not enough that millions upon millions have been killed. No, the vengeful God of heaven is not yet finished with his retribution against stubborn, sin-possessed man. The first part of verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Work that out in your mind. Came down from heaven upon men. When we were studying the seven seals, chart number nine, I noted that the sixth seal represented a projection into the future of the tribulation, something that would occur later. Here it is. Turn, please, to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. And let's read verses 12, 12 to 14. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now stay here. Stay in, in uh, chapter 6. With icy projectiles weighing anywhere from 90 to 135 pounds, the word is talentias, being thrown down to earth. After all that had come before, we see good reason for the behavior of verses 15 to 17. Look at that. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Wait a minute. I'm in the wrong chapter. Isla, why didn't you correct me? Yeah, yeah. So was I. Chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Isn't it amazing how marvelously God's Word is woven together? 
You read one passage and you're left scratching your head. Well, why, why would they run into the caves and then tell the mountains to fall on them? What, what's with these people? I don't quite understand this. I don't understand the behavior of the people. It doesn't make sense to me. But then, another passage explains it. Here we have a passage in Zechariah, something well into the past from the first century, and it's being explained by John's vision to us in Revelation. Why would they behave this way? Well, read the prophet Zechariah. He explains it. We see this time and again, and it substantiates it. It affirms the veracity of God's Word. And the kindness and grace of a sovereign God to explain this all to us. How marvelous He is and how marvelous His Word. Walvard writes, verse 21 records a great hailstorm with every stone about the weight of a talent. Though the talent in different periods of history varied in weight, the reference here seems to be to the talent weighing about 100 pounds and representing all that a man could normally carry. Yeah, maybe when I was 20. Bag of kitty litter is 50 pounds and I can barely manage that. Such a hail from heaven falling upon men would have a devastating effect and would destroy much that was still left standing by the earthquake. It's a judgment compared to that of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but here extending over the entire earth. I think if a 100-pound projectile was coming down onto me, I'd say, okay, I'm going into a cave to get away from the hail, and while we're at it, just fall on me. Get, me, get over this. Just be done with it. I'm ready. Contrary to many commentators who seem surprised that this devastation does not bring about universal repentance, I think it makes perfect sense that unrepentant man would still shake his fist at the heavens and be even more obdurate than before. Thank you. Verse 21b. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. John MacArthur writes, It is too late for these hardened sinners. They have sold their souls to Satan. They are totally committed to Antichrist's blasphemous, idolatrous, anti-God system. Children of wrath they are, catapulting into hell. That's it. The curtain's down. God isn't doing this to save souls. He's doing this in His wrath. He said, I told you I was going to do this. I'm doing it now. These children of wrath will probably not be aware that they themselves are a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Turn please to Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel 7, verses 8 to 9. 
Now upon you, I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. Ezekiel said, they'll know who is responsible for doing this. And they'll shake their fist at him. While we're in the neighborhood, let's turn to the prophet Isaiah to announce the second coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Yeah, I can't hear myself either. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. And note how this familiar passage, often erroneously read at Christmas, takes on a fresh reality because of what we've learned in the Revelation and Zechariah. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's not Bethlehem. That's Jerusalem. We will... Oh, Isaiah, the prince of prophets, described this very moment in time where every island will sink, every mountain will be lowered, every valley lifted up to make a smooth way for the arrival of our Messiah, our Savior and Lord, Christ Jesus. We'll stop here for now. In our next session, we'll see Christ Jesus return to earth. The battle of Armageddon, summary judgment executed upon the two beasts, all remaining combatants killed in a moment, and not least Satan bound in the abyss for 1,000 years. Don't miss it. Our Father in heaven, again, we are in awe of you. You have promised this from the very beginning, and now you're doing it as we see in this narrative. You are a God who keeps his promises. And we thank you for being that God. And we thank you for our Messiah, the one who saved each and every one of us who know him. It has nothing to do with us. It is all him. And now he's coming back to reign for a thousand years. All glory to you and to him. In Jesus' name, amen.